is Leviticus, the Old Testament book of Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 5. You may remember this passage. This is before the people of God enter into the land that was promised to them. And you will notice how the Lord tells them, you're not to be like the prevailing society of the ancient Near Eastern world of your day. And he will be fairly specific throughout this chapter, but we're just going to read the first five verses. Secondly, if you're visiting and are not familiar, when you see the word LORD, L-O-R-D, in all caps, it's the translators telling you that's God's personal covenant name and the Hebrew, Yahweh. And so you'll often hear us read that as we read the text. So Leviticus chapter 18. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am Yahweh your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. And you remember the statutes and the rules that God gives come not so that we can gain God's love, but always remember that all of these come from the liberation of God. That's how he begins the Ten Commandments. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the God who set you free. All those other ways are slavery. Here is the way of freedom. That's Leviticus 18, 1 through 5. And now we turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6, as we just continue marching our way through 1 Peter. Memories, manners, and mandates for God's minority people. We're just picking up right where we left off. Pastor West talked about chapter 3, 13 through 22 last week. This just continues it. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. All that I've read to you from the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, who suffered for us and suffered for our salvation, help us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Amen. You may be seated. If you're visiting and you hear me explode and start screaming and shouting, it's just because I'm excited, okay? I'm not mad at anybody. It's just, I blow up. I just did So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide there with some space there for you to write notes. 
So Bass Reeves, Bass Reeves turned a corner and it put him into a whole new way of living. You see, Bass Reeves had been a slave of African descent here in the U.S., and after his emancipation, he moved from where he had been enslaved into Arkansas, and then he became, surprisingly, a lawman. He became a lawman, a federal lawman, a surprising feat in itself, in its day. The backstory is that U.S. Marshal John James Fagan was authorized by Judge Parker, I think that's the hanging judge, was authorized by Judge Parker to deputize 200 federal marshals to help police Indian territory. That's where we live, y'all. And Reeves, who knew the Indian territory fairly well and, and was able to speak several Native American languages, was deputized, and he began working the territory. A territory that had become a haven for outlaws and rapscallions. Now, Reeves was illiterate. He could neither read nor could he write, but he had a fascinating memory. And so what he would do is when an arrest warrant came, it usually would have a description of the person needing to be arrested. He'd have it read to him, and he could recall it with precision. And on top of that, his approaches could often be innovative. I love this one. Once, he disguised himself as a tramp. And he walked 28 miles into Indian Territory to the home of some outlaws. He smelt like a tramp then. He looked like a tramp. He had nothing but what a tramp would have. And so no one suspected him. And thus, in that disguise, he was able to arrest both of the desperados and march them 20 miles back to the court while their mother cursed him, running behind him part of the way. In the 32 years that he spent as a federal marshal, he arrested more than 3,000 outlaws. And all of this at a time when the majority prevailing culture would look askance at a black federal marshal, especially one who had been a slave. But he went against the majority assumptions and he made his own way. In some aspects, Bass Reeves is a teeny illustration of God's minority people. And so Peter is continuing his pointed theme that sometimes, on occasion, God's minority people suffer at the hands of the majority culture. And so what he writes here in verses chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, comes tumbling out of what Pastor West talked about last week, chapter 3, 13 through 22. So we will take on 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6 in four aspects. Suffered, sufficed, surprised, spirited. There are the four points. Suffered, sufficed, surprised, spirited. And it just will walk us right through these six verses. Verse 1, suffered. Notice that Peter is right back to chapter 3, verse 18, where he said, For Christ also suffered once. For sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Here, Peter is picking up and now moving beyond, not, not pushing aside, but just growing out of substitutionary atonement, which Pastor West talked about last week. He's now moving beyond that, 
where Peter is focusing on our union with Christ, our solidarity with Christ, and the tangible ways that our union, our solidarity with Christ works out in our lives. And so, chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, I'll try to mention this in a minute, a little bit more clearly, but Peter is not talking about entire sanctification having ceased from sin. He's talking about a whole new way of living that makes it look like we have ceased from sin in a sense. But notice the the approach that Peter is taking here in verse 1. It's the very same approach that the Apostle Paul takes over in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the very form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Have this mind in you. It's the same thing Peter is doing here. It's what Paul is driving at over in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's exactly what Peter was doing earlier in 1 Peter over in chapter 2 when he was talking to Christian slaves. And he said to Christian slaves, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps, which then draws us into the power of Christ's death and the suffering for us. When Peter goes on to say in chapter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. You can't miss the whole idea of the union with Christ in this and the solidarity and that it actually impacts the way that we live. And that's what Peter is getting at. And there are Many different directions we can take from verse 1 and walk down different paths. I'm going to only pursue one of these. First off, Peter is encouraging these Christians, and he's encouraging us one more time, and he won't stop, but he's encouraging us again, once more. We should not be shocked that the prevailing society on occasion will speak of us as evildoers, and mishandle us. We shouldn't be surprised. Here it is again. It's what they did to Jesus, remember? The prevailing society rose up and mishandled the Messiah. And he said to us, if this is how they treat me, this is how they will treat you. No shock. No shock. He's reminding us again because Christians are the very first ones to get shocked. <laughs> we should not be shocked. The prevailing society on occasion will speak of us as evildoers and mishandle us. It's what they did with our Lord. But further, this solidarity, by our solidarity with our Lord, his suffering is not only it is for us, but it's not only for us. He is intimately inside the suffering with us. He is intimately inside the suffering with us. We are not castaways. We are not cast-offs. I had something happen this last week that kind of gave me a little sense of what 
verse 1 and the rest is driving at here. Let me tell it to you, and I'll try not to gross you out, okay? I had vertigo, horrible, last weekend. So if you were wondering why I was hugging one of the tables during the adult classes, because you were spinning. And it just got worse and worse. And if you've ever had vertigo, you, you, feel, you feel my pain. Monday was the worst. Well, I already had an appointment with my chiropractor. He had already told me that the next time I had vertigo, come see him. He has this great maneuver that will probably help me. So I went in. He sits me down. I said to him, his name is Adam. I said, Adam, I said, I have vertigo. I said, I can't, I, nothing, is, nothing is steady. It's all swimming. Oh, great. I got a great procedure for you. <laughs> so it was the Samantz maneuver. You probably know what this is. The Samantz maneuver. And so it was tip my head, tip me over this way. Oh, the world swam. Tip me over this way, all oh, the world swam. Sit me back up straight, turn my head straight, and I mean, nothing was steady. And he looks at me and he goes, are you going to be sick? No, I'll be fine. Can I get you a trash can? No, yes. And he gave me a trash can. And I retched. It was horrible. It hurt from the inside out. I mean, everything. I don't want to get gross. Adam runs out of the office. Shuts the door, and I thought, okay, he's deserted me. But he comes running back in with a cup of water, with a wet rag and a dry rag, and he goes and sits at his desk, which is right out of my sight at this place. And so here I am, focused. What are you focusing on when you're in that miserable situation? You're focusing on your misery. You know what I'm saying? He's thankfully shut the door so nobody else has to hear all this. And he's talking to me very calmly from his desk. He's apologizing. I didn't mean to make you sick. You'll be okay. Just keep breathing. How does it feel now? Because the world's still swimming. He's just talking with me. He was right here with me. And I thought about it afterwards. It really helped. It actually settled things down. I thought about it afterwards, and I thought, you know, that was, he may not have meant it to be compassionate, but that was blastedly compassionate. So I called him on the phone two days later. I said, thank you for being in there. Everything's better. I said, and by the way, I just want you to know, if you knew Adam, you would know this is a funny statement. I said, Adam... You are really compassionate. He goes, I'll take that as a compliment. And that was the end of the call. <laughs> but he was with me in the suffering. It gave me a moment to go, oh, yeah, Christ is right here in it with us. That's part of our union with Christ. We know. You know. Quit lying to yourself and saying he doesn't know. Quit making him a cast off and a cast away. He's got you, he's walked through it, and he's with you in it. That's part of Peter's point. Or to put it differently, we're being held. We're being held, held. I must be from Oklahoma. We're being held in the nail-pierced hands of our Lord. Of our resurrected Lord who draws us up close to the spear-pierced side, next to the very heart of the rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious in the sight of God's Savior. That's the point of the last two verses of chapter 3. Our good conscience comes because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And He is ascended into heaven. And He is the King. And He is over all principalities and powers. And He suffered for you. And us. This closeness, this solidarity should lead us to contentment. By the suffering of the righteous one for the unrighteous, chapter 318, Jesus draws us up to God. 
And there we find the smiling face of God, our Father, even in the midst of our suffering. How do you know His face is shining? Because His suffered Son, the Son who suffered for us, is right there with His arms around us, pulling us tight and saying, Father, here's what I died for. And the Father smiles. Of all the many hardships John Calvin faced, and he faced many, he lost even the love of his life, Idleland, some years after this. But one of the things he suffered a lot of, or several times, was the loss of his children. Often in miscarriage and early childbirth, he lost all of them in the end. And one of the hardest ones was a son that he lost in childbirth. He grieved, but he found solace in the midst of his suffering and his grief in this union with this suffering Savior that now brings us to God and we find the face of God is smiling on us in the midst of this. And so he would write, and he wrote in the midst of his pain and tears, he said, but he is our Father and he knows what is best for his children. Clearly, my friends, that doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't take away the tears. It doesn't take away the why me doubts and disturbances. Oh, but dear friends, to know that Christ is in our sufferings and he is not disgusted with us and he is not shoving us away by draw, but instead drawing us so, drawing us close so that we, so that with him we know that the Father is genuinely good and is doing what is really best for us in the end steadies us. That is the ground under our feet. Very much like when my chiropractor was just right there, didn't reject me and talk to me, just steadied the ground under our feet and gives us a more wholesome perspective. Gives us a new way of living that has a significant break with the past. And here we now move into verses 2 and 3, suffice. So the outflow of our union with Christ turns a corner here at the end of verse 1, end of verse 2. It turns a corner where Peter says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Here's what Peter means by has, uh, has ceased from sin. He goes like this, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He's not talking about entire sanctification, for example. Talking about a whole new way of being. No longer living for human passions, but for the will of God. We've turned a corner in there. The corner is kind of like if you use a, a little right angle, if you're doing woodwork, you know what I'm talking about? One of those little squares that you use. It's like the, the turn is like right here. It's at that apex where the two come together. It's like the same thing here. For human passions is the way we lived, but the word but is that corner. But, now for the will of God. We've turned a corner. Well, how did that happen? Well, we have to go back through Peter for just a minute. Recalling who we are, whose we are, and why we are. Recollecting that out of God's abundant mercy, He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to a living hope and a lively inheritance. Recalling that Christ died to actually, really set us free from our old hostage condition, the enslaved, shackled condition of the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. 
And that He has made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own passion, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once, when we were living for human passions, we did not, we were not God's people. But now, the corner has been turned and we're the people of God. Once, when we were living for human passions, we did not know mercy. But now, we know mercy. The corner has been turned and when we finally, it finally gets us. And we see the fitness, we see the beauty, we see the freshness of taking the high adventure of living for the will of God and going around that corner. In fact, my friends, we find that it is actually God himself who has already spawned this very yearning and desire and pleasure in us for the will of God. You hear it back in chapter 1. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so, maybe to oversimplify it, but it works in my head, there's a new flow to our lives, a whole new flow. And so what we need to do and what we are to be doing is to get on the boat with the flow and go with the flow. Give you an example. So Caleb and Derek and I, we were all in Boy Scouts in Midland, Texas, and one time our scout troop decides to go to the Llano River. And we did a 10-mile canoe trip. If you've ever done canoeing, you know 10 miles means 10 hours. No matter what, it seems like what else you can do about it, 10 miles means 10 hours. And the Llano River is flowing one direction, and it's flowing with a pretty decent, steady current, and so you get into the canoe, and you paddle with the current. Guess which is the easy way to go, right? The best way to go. With the current, paddling down the current, right? It's wonderful. Guess what the stupid way to go is? Yes, the opposite direction. And so the scoutmaster that was with me, I had an assistant scoutmaster with me. I was an assistant scoutmaster. We were there. We came over the top of this, this Llano River kind of wash off, and the, the, the current is strong, and it's taking us down. It's wonderful. It was a great, jolly ride going down, but we realized there was a tree down at the end. And it had tipped over, and the big tree roots were facing us with its fingers out toward us. And so Kelly, his name was Kelly, Kelly and I started paddling away from the current. Guess what happened? We T-boned the tree. <laughs> Our canoe turned this way, and we hit the tree. And then, of course, it tipped over, and that was a whole mess. <laughs> the point is, the current took us, and we get in and paddle with the current in the same way. It's that way with us now. But the problem we have is that we live in a majority culture that thrives on human passions. You see it in education, you see it in advertisement, you see it it at the gas station, you see it in the magazine, you see it online, you see it everywhere you go. We live in a majority culture that thrives on human passions. Oh, but let's not throw them under the bus. Let's just take us home, go from preaching to meddling. We ourselves have lived long, long, long years for human passions. And so we have habituated our actions, reactions, thinking, thoughts, voting, paying taxes, everything we do has been habituated for human passions. That's what Peter was talking about earlier when he said the futile ways inherited from our forebears. Oh, but we're good Presbyterians, so let's add to this total depravity. 
said, we want to live for human passions. And so the fight is not a fight with God, per se. It's actually our, it's actually our fighting against God. He's already made the way for us. There's a stream current. He is with us going that direction. And we're always the ones trying to paddle up. If you don't believe me, then think about the last time you had a really big sin. Don't, don't, don't talk about it. I don't want you to talk about it. Now think about it. What lies did you tell yourself that it was okay to do that? What was the pep talk you gave yourself to give yourself approval and permission to do that? You had your paddles out, and you said, I'm turning this canoe around. You you were paddling against God's gracious flood. We all do that. That's why we find sanctification troublesome and hard, because we're always trying to go the wrong way. That's kind of Peter's point here. You see that then, and how he brings it out in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What Peter's driving at is, look, I know that's the way everybody lives. That's how we used to live, really. Even the very self-righteous Jews. How we all lived, in a way. But the corner has been turned. That old direction that we once lived, well, it has sufficed. It's enough. We've had enough of it. We've been brought by the abundant grace of God and grace alone into the new way of seeing, of perceiving, of thinking that is on the right side of history. Sort of like Bass Reeves. No longer being and thinking like a slave or like a third-class citizen, but instead turning the corner and becoming a famous lawman. But more importantly, because of Jesus, we now are on God's good side. And we don't deserve it. That's what justification is all about. We're now, because of Jesus, on God's good side. The past has sufficed. It is enough. And now we're moving in a new way. And guess what? The majority culture of the prevailing society is surprised. That's verses four, uh, 4 and 5, surprised. Yes, the majority prevailing society is surprised, but I want you to notice that there also, there's a surprise waiting for the prevailing society in the weeds. Let me read verse 4 and 5 and listen for the two surprises. Verse 4 and 5. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Did you hear the two surprises? They're surprised that though we live in this prevailing environment, we shop there, we go to school there, we drive there, we do all the things there, yet we don't react. We don't make decisions, we don't exist according to their normalcy. Surprise, Peter says. The second surprise comes after they have maligned us. Did you notice that? After they have maligned us. Peter says they will be the ones who will be brought before, who will be brought before the great judge of heaven. 
the very one who suffered at the hands of his prevailing society, who was maligned and reviled and spoken of as an evildoer as he did good. And that's who they, they will face, and they will have to give an account to him for the words and their ways. Surprise! Two surprises in those verses. And in this statement, verses 4 and 5, we're told once more. Why do you think Peter has to keep coming back to this? Why does he keep hammering this on? Because we don't listen to it. We're told once more that there are seasons and times when we will be maligned. We will be spoken of as evildoers. We will be treated as such. The surprise is for them, not for us. We're not surprised because we have been apprised. We're not surprised because we have been apprised. That's the point. Now look, knowing this does not mean that we go around a-looking for trouble. It does not mean we go out there making ourselves martyrdom magnets. We do not go out there with our hammers and nails and wood and start building our own crosses for them to crucify us on. We don't go running around with paint cans and paintbrushes painting targets on our heads, challenging the reigning population to shoot us. Well, preacher, how do you know that? That doesn't sound countercultural what you're talking about. Because what did Peter keep saying? You'll be maligned and spoken of as evildoers while you're doing what? Good! All the way through First Peter. You're not out there causing trouble. You're not out there protesting in the streets and burning down things. You're not out there calling the government, begging the government to come shoot you and take you down. You're just doing what Jesus says and you just live that way. And at some point, somebody's going to come and knock on the door and say, I don't like you. That's the point. I can tell you tons of stories of when I was in the military and that would happen on occasion. Just doing what you're supposed to do. And because somebody didn't like me being a Christian, a supervisor would try to turn me in for something. It was crazy. But it happens on occasion. We're not surprised because we've been apprised. And we don't go looking for it. But we, of all people, we're the ones who are not surprised when these things happen. There will be seasons and occasions and times when it does. The surprise will be for those who do these things and never repent of their maligning and maltreating. But we don't gloat. We don't gloat that there's a surprise waiting for you. We don't walk around strutting and say, oh, I can't wait till you get yours, baby. We don't gloat. We don't want them to have that surprise if for no other reason. Because, but for the grace of God, there go I. We don't gloat. What we want is we want for them to come and join us at the feet of Jesus in faith and hope and love. Can I get an amen? Amen. It's what Peter was driving at back up in chapter 3 at the end of verse 14 and into verse 15 when he said, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
Well, why do we want to make a defense? Because we want them to come to be with us in faith and hope and love at the feet of Jesus. That's what we want. And we pray for them. Lastly, my friends, to encourage us that we're on the right side of history, Peter now draws us to our spirited heritage in its verse 6. There's lots of controversy about verse 6. That's fine. I'm just going to tell you where I'm going based because of 1 Peter. It seems to me that with the words that Peter is using here in verse 6, he is, what he's doing is he is taking us back in time, way back to our ancient heritage. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are, right now, dead. This is why the gospel is preached to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, at least Peter has in mind what he said clear back in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, when he said the prophets spoke by the Spirit of Christ that was in them about the sufferings of Christ and the present, pres, uh, and the, uh, uh, the glory, subsequent glory. Sorry, I lost the word there. The subsequent glories. In fact, they finally realized that they were not really ministering to themselves, but to us. So he's at least going back to the Old Testament, and he's talking about them, that they actually heard the gospel and were saved the same way you and I are saved, by grace alone and Christ alone, received in faith alone. He's at least referring to that, but at the most, he's also including in that number of those who are dead, the followers of Jesus who have died before he sent this missive off to the churches. What Peter is doing is he is reminding us that the prevailing society has been judging God's minority people for a long, 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 long time. And the society judges God's minority people and judges each other, actually, through human passions. Notice the phrase he uses, judged in the flesh the way people are. There's a great synopsis of 13 February, 2022, United States of America. That's how we do. That's how we function. Judged in the flesh the way people are. But knowing this, we're encouraged to join our faithful ancestors and Christian predecessors who are now dead but had the gospel preached to them, who walked this path being judged in the flesh the way people are. We're encouraged to join our faithful ancestors and Christian predecessors in being a spirited people. They might, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. I know it's lower S in our ESV, and I think it should be a capital S, actually. I would disagree with the translators. That we would walk in the power, walk in the strength, walk in the grace of the spirit, even the way God does. It's the way Paul puts it in Galatians 5 and verse 16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so God, by His marvelous grace alone, in Christ alone, has placed us, His minority people, on the right side of history. Not worried about how they judge us in the flesh the way people do, but being the spirited people who are with God, walking with God. Kind of like Enoch. Do you remember Enoch in Genesis 5? He walked with God and was no more. We walk with those who embraced the gospel before us, 
And as we do that, then we know that we will, we will be judged in the flesh the way people are. But we have been made by the grace of God, a spirited people, a people living in the spirit the way God does. Peter is not talking about being some disembodied ghosts and phantoms. It's about living in the strength and the power and the life of the spirit. If the Father and the Son are in intimate communion with one another and love one another and the Spirit around them is that love, then if we live in the Spirit as God does, we are living in what John calls in the Gospels eternal life. That's where Peter went. Eternal life. Oh, that means we're on the right side of history in the end. Living in the strength and power and the life and the Spirit with God and in God's way, the way that is no longer for human passions, before the will of God. And friends, there's 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. It encourages us. Christ suffers in our suffering with us. He is with us in it. By our union with him, which is all because of grace. And that encourages us that we have now turned this corner. We're no longer living for human passions, but we are living for the will of God. Oh, and by the way, as we do so, guess what? Well, no surprise. We'll be maligned. Okay. They'll have to answer for it, but Lord, please save them. And can I be a part of their salvation? That's where Peter's going with this. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, you're so grateful. You have not left us alone like orphans. That in your Son, in union, in solidarity with your Son, which has been done all by grace, your Son suffers with us when we suffer. And he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Oh, even when we're suffering, we are beholding the face of God smiling for us, smiling at us. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us, that we would simply just be the faithful, normal, ordinary, godly Christians we're supposed to be living for the will of God. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we are surprised when we get maligned for being just simply doing good and being faithful. Forgive us for being surprised. You've already told us repeatedly. Help us, Lord, that we may be those through whom your gospel goes forward, even to those who will judge us in the flesh the way people are. And that we might see some of our detractors and maligners to come and worship with us one day at the feet of the liberating, emancipating, Jesus. This Lord is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.